0: Well, to the joy of many of you and to the disappointment of some, uh, we're going to be finishing our trek through Judges this morning. We started all the way back in January with Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're going to finish the last uh, portion of the, of the book today. We're going to start at chapter 20, verse 8. We're going to work our way all the way through the end, like I promised, uh, in chapter 21, verse 25. That's where we'll end this morning. Now, the Civil War is widely considered uh, one of the deadliest wars in American history. It resulted in the deaths of an estimated 750,000 soldiers, and an undetermined number of civilian casualties went unrecorded. The war was indeed bloody and devastating. One estimate of the death toll is that 10% of all northern males 20 to 45 years old and 30% of all southern white males aged 18 to 40 died in the Civil War. It was a dark and sad time in our nation's history. And I bring that up because this morning we find ourselves in a text that is similarly distressing. It's a civil war within the nation of Israel. Brother against brother. If you recall from last week, a Levite had sent the limbs of his concubine to all the tribes of Israel and reported, somewhat dishonestly, the horrors that he had encountered in Gibeah. And as a result, for the first time in a very, very long time, we're going to see Israel unite as one man. We're going to see Israel be committed to administering justice against this city and against the tribe which houses this city. It's funny, though, that uh, the tribes of Israel are united under not a judge, but a Levite priest who wasn't really serving as a Levite priest, who was murderous. Finally, the tribes are allied in a common military exercise. But tragically, instead of taking aim at the Canaanites, like they were supposed to do, They have their sights set on one of their own. That's the stage that we find ourselves on this morning. Israel is on the brink of what will eventually become civil war. Again, our text is Judges chapter 20, verse 8 through 21, verse 25. We're going to work through it in three parts. We're going to see Israel as one, and that'll take us through the end of chapter 20. We're going to look at some ominous oaths, and that'll take us through chapter 21, with the exception of the last verse, when we'll turn to waiting for the king. Israel is one, ominous oaths and waiting for the king. The one big thing that I want you to think about this morning as we work through the text that I want you to walk home with is that we, like Israel, are our own worst enemy that broken people, indeed all people, are in need of the faithful God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, many of us came this morning struggling. It wasn't easy to get out of bed and get here. Many of us fought with spouses in the car on the way here, or children, or, or even ourselves. Thank you for getting us here this morning. Father, forgive us our sins. Wash us by the water of your word. Invigorate our passion for the gospel. Inflame our affections for you. Teach our hearts to sing of your faithfulness through your word this morning. God, make your name great. Amen. So Israel... As one. In verse 8, we see that the people of Israel are very serious about getting justice. So much so that they've kind of said, Not one of us is going home until this is dealt with, even if it means war. So they surround Gibeah, they get all the people there, all the provisions, everything they need, and then they say to Gibeah, What is the evil that has taken place among you? Give up the men, the worthless fellows, that we may put them to death and purge this evil from Israel. But in verse 13, we read, The Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Benjamin isn't going to give up the bad guys and instead gets ready for war, mustering a force of nearly 26,000 men complete with a special forces unit of 700 lefties. Now, being left-handed is not typically something that's sought after. You can't ever find uh, anything that's made just for you. Uh, And even in this society, it wasn't thought of as a good thing. But if you get enough lefties together and you put them all in the same unit, it actually is a distinct tactical advantage in war. And that's why we're told in verse 16 that these left-handed Benjamites were extraordinary marksmen. And their slingshots almost never missed even the smallest of targets. The text actually says a hair. They don't miss hairs. So they're they're pretty good marksmen. They're going to hit their mark. Benjamin is ready for war. I find myself initially going, why? Like, why not just turn over these worthless fellows, these bad guys? I think that the answer may be that they're prideful. It could be that they're ignorant, or perhaps it was both. Uh, I, I say prideful in terms of their relationship with these wicked men who were likely of the same blood, of the same family, they're of the same country. And so no outsider, somebody outside of the group, is allowed to like, level a charge against them. You know, it's, it's the family. The family is right. Don't, you, know, you can't say that they did something wrong. They're in the family. We're sure that they didn't, and so we're going to defend them. say ignorance because perhaps there is an aspect of uh, my little Johnny would never do that going on here, right? I don't know if y'all saw the Dateline show where they had parents like watch their kids on video do things they thought they would never do. It's pretty interesting, Uh, but that's kind of the the thing that's going on here. They're willing to defend these worthless fellows. I think this can be kind of a sneaky idol that we, we all kind of have. It's where we show extreme partiality towards our own country, or our own family, our own circle of friends, so that we put those relationships above the transcendent moral order. So that we would even avoid justice in the name of protecting that which we have deemed most valuable. We make a God of our own people rather than seeking what is best for human flourishing. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be concerned with promoting justice for the good of all men and to the glory of God. After all, God is concerned with promoting justice. So too should his people be. And that takes us down to our second section, verses 18 through 29. We see Benjamin is ready to go to war. And as a result, Israel makes itself ready to go to war. And the tribes go up and they ask God, hey, who should go first? God says, Judah. Judah goes up first and gets absolutely worked. I mean, the Benjamites, they live in the hills and that kind of favors the defending force. Uh, You might want to think of it a little bit like Star Wars. Uh, if you've ever seen episode three, the newer ones that they made, there's a scene at the end and uh, Obi-Wan's kind of on the high ground and Anakin's down below him. And he says, hey, don't try it. I have the high ground. This battle is over. And Anakin tries to like jump over his head and he gets cut down. Right? It doesn't go well for him. He has the tactical advantage again. And so Benjamin, even though their numbers are much less than Israel is able to win a convincing victory. They defeat them soundly. As soundly as the Broncos defeated the Seahawks in the Super Bowl this year, they defeated them. And so Israel goes back up to God and they ask, hey, should we go fight again? And God says, yes, again, go and fight. Israel goes up a second time and this time they're defeated again. This time like the Heat lost to the Spurs in the NBA Finals or Ghana lost to the U.S. last week, right? They're utterly defeated. They lose. And so the people's trust in their own plans and in their own numbers has been effectively crushed. So they begin weeping, they begin sacrificing, they begin praying and seeking the will of the Lord. Now they're seeking the Lord for the third time, but really, really it's the first time. The first two times they asked God almost as an afterthought, Israel had determined to fight all on their own. They just needed to know who should go first. And the second time, they just needed to know, hey, should we go again? What do you think? We're already in this fight. I think Keller is helpful here. He says, although on both days God answers their questions about who to send and whether to fight, these are no longer guarantees of success as they had been in the past. God is saying, go, but not, I will go with you. Israel is so convinced of the rightness of their cause, that so the first two questions don't even really leave room for the answer, no. They know what they need to do. They just need God to rubber stamp their decision. Have you ever been so convinced of your own rightness, of your own decision, that you sought God as an afterthought? Have you ever been so set on your plan that you hardly thought it was necessary to even seek the Lord's will? I think this is our mistake, as well as Israel's, that we presume upon the grace of God. We presume upon his will. We presume upon his favor. We shouldn't seek God for a rubber stamp on our plans, but for the plan itself. Lives should be marked by prayer, prayer that is primary, prayer that comes first. Pray first and then follow the course. Israel's third request, however, is answered with a promise. God says, go up for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And so Israel makes use of a familiar plan. Block notes. The account shares many similarities with Joshua's defeat of I in Joshua's chapter 7. Uh, sorry, in Joshua chapters 7 through 8. In both accounts, the final victory comes only after a series of initial failure. In both the first battles are described in the briefest of terms. The elaboration of detail being reserved for the last engagement. Both portray the protagonist following similar strategies. They set up an ambush. They fake defeat to lure the enemy out. They attack and burn the city. And then the enemy notices the fire from the city and flees in panic. And ultimately, the slaughter of enemy forces. And that's what happens here. Israel sets up an ambush by making the Benjamites think that they've won a third easy victory. So Benjamin chases Israel out from the city, and then uh, they turn around and they say, hey, there's a big column of smoke, what's happening? And they flee in terror. Israel sets the city afire, defeating one of her own tribes. By the same tactics that were used in Joshua, I don't think this is insignificant. I think it points us to the fact that Israel has become just like the pagan enemy. That Benjamin has become so Canaanized, so godless that it meets the same end as the city of Ai. Israel has become like the people of the land. As if the the picture are not grim enough, we read verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts and all they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Victory already complete. Justice already in hand. Yet Israel continues to slaughter every single man, woman, and child. Even every animal of Benjamin. This is not justice. It's genocide. Justice would at the very most demand the execution of the hooligans of Gibeah. And just possibly the Benjamites who came out to fight for them. What justification was there for the slaughter of the whole Benjamite society? Think that this is the work of bitterness, which demands not one eye, but two in revenge for every eye lost. It's the wrong measure of justice. It's a measure that's more in step with satisfying human rage rather than the divine law. This injustice is indeed the fruit of bitterness. And the root of bitterness always flowers into vindictiveness. On a large scale, it looks like Judges 20. I think on a personal level, it can seem less extreme. But the destructiveness is still real, even though it's scaled down. The only way to avoid bitterness is to practice forgiveness. Nothing else will uproot angry resentment. Keller gives some practical advice on forgiveness. He writes, First, we must grant forgiveness before it's felt. Forgiveness is primarily a promise not to bring up the wrong with the other person, not to bring it up with others, and not to bring it up in our own thoughts. It's a promise not to dwell on our hurt or nurse ill will towards the other person. See, these things are under control. Our thoughts, though we might not be able to prevent them from springing up, are under our control. We control what we dwell on, what we think about. So I ask you this morning, what sin, what hurt are you dwelling on? What bitterness are you nursing like an infant so that it's growing within you, consuming you? Friends, we need to practice forgiveness. We need to forgive much as those that have been forgiven much. We must realize that forgiveness is only possible when we see and feel the reality of God's massive and costly forgiveness of us through Jesus. Only the knowledge of our debt to God can put into perspective someone else's debt to us. The forgiveness of Christ gives us the emotional humility to forgive. We can think to ourselves, who am I to withhold forgiveness when I am such a sinner? When I'm such a mess, who am I to not forgive my brother or my sister or my neighbor? Gives us the emotional humility to forgive. It also gives us the emotional resources to forgive. For we can ask the question: what what does this person really rob me of? I've got so much in Christ that cannot be taken. Lastly, it's important that we practice forgiving before attempting reconciliation. I mean, granting forgiveness before we begin restoring the relationship with the other person ensures that we won't bring up the wrongs done against us in some kind of attempt to humiliate or attack or hurt the other person. I'm not going to use it as leverage, but truly seek peace. The civil war in Israel has ballooned because there's not a desire to promote justice. There's not a desire to seek God's will primarily. There's not a desire to practice forgiveness. Israel is a very broken people. A people like us that needs the faithful God. Broken people that need to learn to practice forgiveness. In a most ironic way, this chapter portrays the nation of Israel engaged in a holy war against their own kinsmen, with all the passion that they should have displayed in their war against the Canaanites. Israel has discovered her greatest foe, and it is herself. She is her own worst enemy. And she needs a faithful God. It takes us to chapter 21. Uh, The section I've called Ominous Oaths. The beginning of this chapter, the first verse anyway, is a little bit uh, like a flashback. Uh, Maybe you would have a character do in a movie. Sometimes they flash back to previous times in their lives. And it brings us back to this meeting that happened at Mizpah, the beginning of chapter 20, when all of Israel is together. Only this time we're given a little bit more information. In their zeal to get justice for what had happened and to punish the Benjamites, uh, they swore that they were not going to give their daughters in marriage to anybody of the tribe of Benjamin. And if they did, they would be worthy of death. So as the flashback concludes in verse 2, we see that the Israelites have started to regret some of their actions. They regret this genocide because only 600 men escaped. And so now they've basically exterminated a tribe of Israel. So they're upset. So what do they do? They, they say, oh, Lord God of Israel, in verse three, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel saying, why did this happen? I think the obvious answer is because you all went on a rampage, right? You started killing innocent people. Your sin, your actions have consequences, See, there's more to Israel's questioning here than meets the eye. The question actually has an accusatory bent to it. Israel is blaming God for what has happened. I mean, that's everybody's favorite move at the end of the day, isn't it? When things don't quite go right, usually there is somebody we can point the finger at, and usually uh, we can just point it right at God. This is God's fault. He let this happen. I think we do that because it's easier to blame God than to engage in self reflection, or to accept responsibility for our actions. Sin has consequences, and thankfully, when we accept responsibility and confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Blaming God doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem for Israel either, and instead of seeking God for a solution, the Israelites, they try to fix this issue on their own. First, they try to find some loopholes. They go, hey, did anybody miss the assembly when we made this oath? Is there anybody that didn't make the oath? And what luck, uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead failed to attend the meeting. And so they, during the meeting, they'd sworn this oath to one another that anybody that didn't show up for the meeting, well, we could kill them so they have some morally suspect reasoning going on, and they just decide, we're going to kill everybody in this tribe that didn't show up to our initial meeting, that didn't make the oath about giving their daughters in marriage. Except, we're going to kill everybody but the virgin girls. And so they go and they do that, right? They kill everybody in this tribe except for the virgin girls, which turns out to be around 400 of them. And they go to the Benjamites and say, look, we're at peace now. Uh, We're going to try to help you grow and and flourish. We're sorry about the genocide thing. Uh, And here are these 400 girls. Then they realize, hey, there's 600 of these people. So we're 200 short. So they get together again, and they start to come up with a secondary solution to their problem. They're sitting around, and they remember an annual festival during which girls will uh, go off and, and dance in the vineyards apart from the men. So as they're sitting around, these elders, uh, one of the elders has a light bulb above his head, and he he says, look, this is what we can do. While these girls are by themselves dancing in the vineyard, we'll just tell the Benjamites where they are, and they can steal the girls. See, we wouldn't be giving them our, our, our daughters as wives. They'd be taking them as wives. We've got a loophole. Everybody around says, this is brilliant. This is a brilliant strategy. And so they do that. They do that keller summarizes well here he says an assembly which had gathered to do justice for a single raped and murdered woman ends up planning and promoting the murder of a whole town and the abduction and rape of the girls of two israelite towns and in verse 24 everyone returns home israel has tried again and again to fix the problem but they can't and the problem is is they don't recognize the problem underneath the problem they're treating the symptoms rather than the sickness and they've just made things worse i think that we're just like them both culturally and individually always trying to fix things ourselves I think culturally, uh, at at least within the last hundred years, the thought has been, if we can just enlighten everyone enough, if we can just get educated enough and promote tolerance enough, then all of the evils in the world will eventually go away. Individually, we just think if we can get this certain thing or do this or that, everything will be all right. We can be the captain of our soul, the master of our own destiny. We can bring peace to ourselves. But as a community and as individuals, we discover that we can't fix our problems on our own. Even though we look to these idols to solve our problems. They just teach us that, in fact, we do have idols. This proved to us that we don't know the remedy for our sickness and our sickness is sin. The problem underneath the problem is our sin nature. Our desire to worship self and stuff instead of God. Our desire to do things our way instead of God's way. It's a problem that is ingrained in our very DNA. No one can escape the sin nature. No one can fix the problem on their own. Must learn just like Israel did that it's not the enemy outside of us that threatens us, but the enemy within. Must recognize the sickness of sin and receive the only true remedy for it the remedy of the Redeemer. And that's the remedy that's offered to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He fixes the problem of sin by taking the punishment for sin on our behalf. Have you received the remedy? I want to point out the last part of verse 24 says, They went out from there every man to his inheritance. And this exact phrase is also found in Joshua chapter 24 verse 28. And it's just after Israel has promised that they will not serve other gods, but only the one true God. They're going to serve him with fear and with sincerity and with faithfulness. It's that uh, very quotable part. You've probably seen it on like a Christian coffee mug or or T-shirt somewhere. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Joshua's just proclaimed that. The people of Israel have have proclaimed they're just going to follow the Lord. A real rah-rah moment in that chapter of Joshua. And it says, and everybody went to their inheritance, And here we are at the end of Judges. It's not been that long. The people are not following the Lord. They're not keeping their promises. Indeed, these broken people have broken their promises. And they're going back to their inheritance, this time without God. The people of God have become just like the godless people of the land. They came to take the land, but the land ended up taking them. Israel turns out to be her own worst enemy. And we are our own worst enemies. As Block writes, No book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. This book is a wake-up call for a church more abound in its own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of the church... Everywhere congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. We follow our own desires rather than God's desire. Indeed, verse 25 rings as true now for us as it did for Israel. Then in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was indeed waiting on a king king that would come in the person and work of jesus christ a true king that we wait for his return we like israel need a king i think what's made clear for israel throughout the old testament and what's made clear for us is that a merely human king would not be enough wouldn't be enough to save us from the problem under the problem wouldn't be enough to eradicate sin A merely human king, no matter how good, will himself ultimately be sinful. We recognize in this that we need a deliverer who can come without being called for. Because human beings are not really seeking God. We need a king that will choose us rather than us choosing him. Because sin will prevent us from choosing that which is truly good. This Savior King will have to do the work of deliverance and salvation himself, since we're not able to contribute anything to our salvation. Indeed, we are children of wrath. We need a Savior King who can purge us of the evil in our hearts, not just within our society. We need a King that is both human and divine. And Jesus is just that. Some of you that have spent some time with me know that I love Christian rap, and so I try to work it into my life very often. And and, uh, I kind of argue that uh, Christian rap today is like contemporary hymns because there's theological depth to a lot of the words. And so uh, I think that the Christian rap artist Flame actually uh, captures a little bit what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, And this is what he writes in his song, Joyful Noise. It says, Christ is king, lion, lamb, God, man, sin conqueror, grave conqueror, Satan conqueror. Can take a sinner, atheist, sinner to God conscious. Can take nothing, make creation and lives honor. The same God that came through a fetus as Jesus, limited to breathing, has believers singing. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's a whole lot of theology there. Saying, the God of the universe... Who created everything from nothing, who spoke everything into existence, came as a baby, it was both fully God and fully man. Came through a fetus as Jesus. Love it. He limited himself to breathing, limited himself to being like us. His victory in his death and resurrection should leave us singing. Angels surrounding his throne. And worthy is the lamb who was slain. The whole earth is full of his glory. All the nations bow to his name. His majesty fills the heavens. Our hearts give thunderous praise. Declare the Lord is forever. Make a joyful noise in this place. We like Israel are a broken people in need of the faithful God. Indeed, the king that we need has come. The king that Israel was waiting for, the king that we were waiting for has come. We need only follow him. He is the remedy. The king of kings has met our needs. He's taken our punishment. He's given us his righteousness. He's defeated death. He's fixed our relationship with God. That's the true problem. That's the problem of sin is that our relationship with God is broken. Jesus has fixed it. We need only come to Him. Jesus is our freedom from sin, our freedom from death. He is our salvation. And He ought to lead us into rejoicing with thunderous praise from purified hearts. We ought to eagerly look forward to singing holy 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 worthy is the lamb that was slain we ought eagerly wait for the return of the king would you pray with me this morning dear heavenly father we thank you that you speak kindly to us that you speak peace over us in the cross we thank you that you remind us by your Holy Spirit daily our need to return to the gospel. And to meditate on that glorious truth that you live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That glorious truth that just as you rose from the grave, we will rise and be made like you in every way. That glorious truth that we will indeed get to surround your throne And make a joyful noise unto your glory. God, what a great grace and privilege. May we never presume upon the gospel. Let us never take you for granted. Let us never forget the enemy of sin. Let us not trust in ourselves. But compel us, O Holy Spirit, to trust in you. Make us new. Hope the words of Scripture be true in our lives. That the old has passed away. And that the new has come. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let that be the cry of our hearts. Amen.